Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. One chapter of World War II that has not been widely written about is the experience of German POWs who were incarcerated in the United States. Between 1942 and 1946, more than 425,000 German POWs were interred in over 700 camps in 46 states. Tens of thousands were brought for imprisonment in Tennessee, which had four main camps and several smaller branch camps. One such camp was located in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. Our guests today are the resident experts on the POW camp in Lawrenceburg and are here to help tell the story of how it came about, who the men were that were both interred in the camp and worked there, and what its legacy is today. I'm honored to have joining us in the studio Mr. Tim Pettis and Mr. Curtis Peters. Mr. Pettis is a native of Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. He received his degrees from Middle Tennessee State University and the Louisiana State University School of Banking. He spent 29 years with Bank of America, then the last 19 with First Farmers and Merchants Bank, where he is the vice chairman. Mr. Pettis is also chairman of Southern Tennessee Higher Education Center. Mr. Peters is a Lawrence County native who received his bachelor degree in history from Florence State University, which is now known as University of North Alabama. He also is an ROTC graduate and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army in 1973. He taught history at Summertown High School for 40 years. Not only has he taught history, geography, and technology courses, he received a U.S. Department of Energy fellowship at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. He taught in Oak Ridge during the summer months for several years. Together, Mr. Pettis and Mr. Peters contributed to the book One Man's Vision, One County's Reward, How the Life of James H. Stribling Affected His Fellow Men, which was written by Kathleen Graham Gandy and published by Shock Enterprises in 2013. Mr. Pettis and Mr. Peters, welcome to History's Hook. Thank you. Thank you. World War II was fought over much of the globe, but the devastation of war was not much felt in the United States, with the notable exception of Hawaii due to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yet the enemy was present in great numbers in the form of prisoners of war. In the years that I've been in the business of history in Tennessee, I've only heard bits and pieces of the story of German POWs here in Tennessee, but no one has seemed to know much about the detail. Why do you think, Mr. Peters, is the story of the prisoners of war in America a lesser-known story told today? Uh, over time, things get lost in history, and I think that's one of the things. The people that remembered it were the ones that were here, but uh, the younger ones coming up. I, you know, I have a history degree, and not one time in high school or college did anyone ever mention this to me. So, you know, I, it just gets lost. It's a little bit of a secretive story, and it's one of the things that really fascinated me about this. That I would get the bits and pieces of the story, but no one, no one seemed to know the detail. With the war mostly fought in Europe and Asia, at what point did the United States government decide to bring prisoners of war to the United States? Uh, when they finally got into North Africa and they started getting lots of German prisoners, uh, they didn't know what to do with them. They were going to have to use soldiers that would guard them. They were going to have to carry food over and prepare food for them, build facilities to keep them in. And they had ships bringing uh, supplies over, 
and those ships were going back empty. So I, I think they decided over time we need to load these prisoners over, send them back home, let them take care of the problem, and we go about the war. I read also that Great Britain, by this time, had been in the war for some time, that they had a shortage of housing. And I think the first influx of POWs came from Britain. About 175,000 German prisoners were brought back, as you said, on those empty ships that were heading uh, heading westward uh, towards the North American continent. Um, I mentioned that the large number of prisoner of war camps were located all around the United States. What was the criteria, criteria for choosing campsites? A lot of the campsites were former CCC camps from the Civilian Conservation Corps. Those boys had left and gone off to fight, and so the camps were discontinued, and they were still in different states of repair. And so they used those, and they also wanted warmer areas where they didn't have to provide so much uh, fuel for them, the heat and stuff like that. And they wanted them away from the industrial areas. So if they escaped, they might not be a power, you know, they might not destroy the industries and stuff. Right. I think one of the the rules as they were establishing the rules for POW camps is they could not be built within a radius of 40 miles of installations vital to the war effort. So that, that narrows it down considerably. So I guess most of these are in pretty rural areas like Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. They were in the south, a lot of them in the south and a lot of them in the west. It was a major logistical endeavor. Uh, if you consider the standing army, uh, United States Army in 1939 was 200,000. There were installations enough in the United States for 200,000. But as I mentioned at the beginning of this, over 400,000 POWs would be coming. There was no real infrastructure in place with the U.S. government to to house all of these, these men without putting them in place. So uh, there are lots of organizations, many offices within the military and civilian establishment had to work together. Many more were created to make it work properly. Even fraternal and religious organizations had a hand in seeing to the well-being of POWs. The YMCA was one organization that had a hand in it, the Lutheran Church, another, because they had direct connections to, to Germany. Um, why Lawrenceburg? Of all places, where where does it come about that Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, which is still a pretty rural rural community, for our listeners who don't know where that is, describe Lawrenceburg today and and give us a reason why you think Lawrenceburg was a logical logical choice for a POW camp. At a CCC camp, and uh, Mr. Stribblin, who you've read through the book in and out, owned that uh, land on top of Pine Bluff that became the prisoner of war camp for a couple three years. He was also uh, the largest landowner in Lawrence County, owning up to 66,000 acres. And he owned the David Crockett State Park for land and just all the way to the to Napier. And he had this camp that he had, the CCC boys had used, so it had the tents and it had everything they needed. The soldiers originally came to Camp Forest, Tullahoma, and that, I think it, a couple of hundred thousand went through there, and that's where they dispersed them across the, the uh country but it was also where they came back together to leave didn't they yeah they had to take them again yeah so uh biggest reason uh we had the camp and mr stribblin asked for it and uh it might have been for selfish reasons he also needed help on the farm and so uh, every day he would go to the camp and get six of the same prisoners out and they would work uh, during the day on the farm and he would have them a nice lunch there and and all, all went well. But he probably had a couple of reasons. One, he needed the help. And two, he had the land. I don't know what he got paid, you know, for the Army paid him for rent or anything on it. But uh, it, the camp was uh, enclosed. 
what, 30-something acres? 30, about 35 acres. And uh, had its own doctor, and, and uh, it, was, it was really a family. These guys were not Nazis. No. They were just young German boys that got drafted in the 30s and had been in all these years. And uh, so there was no security issues to speak of, and they all got along well and hadn't had it so well in many years. Yeah. We're going to touch on a, on several of the of the topics that you just mentioned uh, right right there. Let's talk about Stribling for just a minute. This is one of those stories, I think, that spans a great deal of history. Stribling's life is really important, I think, to Middle Tennessee as a whole. Uh, you mentioned he's a, he's a wealthy landowner. Where does he get his wealth from? <laughs> A grocery store in Denton, Texas. <laughs> he uh, was just an average kid growing up. It was six children. His family, he was like in the middle. He was born in 1863. And uh, his father was called uh, Colonel James Stribling, but we're not sure he ever served. Well, in the, they think that's because he sat at the courthouse and, and whittled with his knife most of the time. Oh, so, he yeah. was a colonel. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Stribling was just an average boy in Lawrenceburg and uh, – kind of uh, aimless and uh he decided he needed to learn to do something and so he uh uh became an apprentice pharmacist uh he worked for a pharmacy for a whole year for no pay to learn how to mix the mix the drugs and uh he didn't know generally it was uh the guy that he worked for at the end of the term would give him a gift of course he was looking forward to money and the guy surprised him. Gave him, it was in July, and he gave him a big, heavy overcoat. Oh, <laughs> so that was his pay for a year. But he went on and uh, bought a uh, pharmacy in Linden, Tennessee, and kept it for a while, and then sold it and made twelve hundred dollars. So at that time, it was go west, young man. And so he went to the train depot and said, "Here's my money. Let this take me as far as it will." And it took him to Denton, Texas, which is a little <laughs> cowboy town in in Texas. Well, he, he looked around for what can I do, you know, to make a living. So he found a grocery store uh, that was a, abandoned or a guy was wanting to sell. He said, well, now I can live in the back room and I can eat off the shelves and I should be able to get by. And uh, just so happened this uh, grocery store was besides a barber shop. And uh, in those days, gentlemen didn't shave themselves. They go to the barber shop every day or so, and their little cup would be on the shelf along the wall, and they would stand in line to get shaved every day. Well, one of them kind of said, "Well, it's going to be a while." So he went next door to Stribling's store and and uh, looked around a while, and he's uh, uh, just pretty much a cowboy type guy, and. He said, I work for a ranch. Do you mind if we, if I purchase a few things? Well, Stribling was thrilled to death. Yeah, great. But, you know, looking at him, how's he going to pay me? So the guy said, kept saying, I'll take that and that. I'll just put it out in the wagon, that and that and that. Pretty soon the whole store was empty. And Stribling was carrying out the merchandise, not knowing if he was going to get paid or not. Well, the guy got, oh, said, uh, go down to the bank. The president of the bank will write you a check for this. And uh, so Stribling rushed to the bank, and uh, the guy said, yeah, we, we've noticed your store in town. We appreciate you doing business with us, and uh, I'm not going to pay you all of it. I'm going to let you subscribe to some of my bank stock. Hmm. Well, you know, Stribbler needed bank stock, but like he needed a hole in the head at that right. point. He was just trying to survive. 
But anyway, it kept on that way every month. They would come in, clean him out, clean him out. Some people have said it was a King Ranch. I think it was too far a distance to be the King Ranch. But anyway, that went on and on and uh, got the attention of uh, Swift and Company and people that could give him lines of credit where he could buy whole beef at one time, you know. And uh, that went on, I don't know exactly how many years. I know his mother got ill, and he came back to Lawrenceburg and— some people say I've heard two different amounts, but the highest amount I've seen, he came back with a quarter million dollars, and that would have been in eighteen ninety. Eighteen nineties when he came back. So and uh, so he wasn't there uh, very long, and uh, at that time it was really bad times, and all the insurance companies on the land, you know, just about had it foreclosed, and so he started buying up land, and at the end of the day, he owned sixty six thousand acres. Every farm I own, his name is on the deed. Is that right? <laughs> he owns from Lawrenceburg, west side of Lawrenceburg, all the way to the Lewis County line. He could get in his buggy and never get off his land until he got to the Lewis County line. Wow. And uh, he started a bank in 1902. It was First National Bank, became Third National, became SunTrust, and it's still there. So uh, he came back with, at that time, not a whole lot of money today, but a fortune in those days. He wanted to be a farmer, but he wasn't any good at it. But uh, he, he, he bought land, he sold land, he financed land, the bank financed land, and uh, he, was, he was quite a businessman and became quite a politician in his later years. And if you wonder why there's an exit at Napier off the Natchez Trace, He's the reason. He's the reason why. I mean, it's a real American story, right? This kid that came from from rural Tennessee and really made made something of himself. It's a it's a wonderful story of entrepreneurship, as well. So some of the land that he owned became a CCC camp, and that becomes sort of the impetus for a POW camp. Um, Mr. Peters, talk about the CCC. What what it was, and and who who lived at the camp, and what was what was their role? The uh Depression hit, and when the Depression hit, everybody lost their money, and they had no jobs. And so when Roosevelt became president, he started the Civilian Conservation Corps. And what they did is they put young men to work, and they would get paid something like $2 a week. And they usually keep 50 cents and send $1.50 home to mom and dad. And uh, they came from all over the country. And like the camp at Lawrenceburg, it wasn't just Lawrence County boys. They could have been from anywhere. And some Lawrence County boys, they ended up in Oregon or California or Texas or at other CCC camps. Uh, Lawrence County had, had a couple of camps, but this was the main one. And uh, we have a, actually have a picture of it from 1939. And they had, had barracks that were built with tar paper and wood, not real structurally sound today but that's what they stayed in and they worked they 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 cut wood they cleaned property they built lakes uh they built roadways i know if you go to the the great smoky mountain national park you'll see stone walls that the ccc built during that period of time so they did conservation stuff all over the country and uh in lawrenceburg you know you'd have there were there were probably a, a hundred to 120 that were at the camp there and uh, we have found some of the names from Lawrenceburg that were at it, and, uh, but uh, not all of them were from Lawrence County. And that camp started about when and, and ended at about? I think the camp originally was there in 1936, and then it left, and then it came back around 37 and stayed till 41 till World War II broke out. And then, then it disappeared, and I think they tore down a lot of the buildings that had been there. There were still a few of them there when the POW camp came in, and uh, 
the POW camp, or, or, it was a sub-camp from Telahoma. Uh, Telahoma was the big camp. They had around 20,000 prisoners there. Uh, but they had five sub-camps, and Lawrenceburg was the second largest of those sub-camps. And we had around 330 German prisoners at it. And so when they came over, a lot of the buildings were gone, so they had to put up uh, tents on wooden platforms that three prisoners would be in each one of those tents. And, uh, and, and then they used some of the barracks that had been there for, for the CCC, for the guards. The topography there is kind of interesting, where the camp stood. Describe that for us. Uh, it, we call it Pine Bluff. It's up on the top of this kind of like a three-sided bluff. Uh, you had to go out of your way to get around to it. Uh, if you look off to the northwest of it, you're looking into Davy Crockett State Park. Uh, Shoal Creek ran around the base of it, so you had the creek there. And uh, it, about 35 acres that he had up there, and, and that stayed in the Stribling uh, State until around 1961 uh, uh, or so when they sold off the lots uh, for houses and things to be built up there. Hmm. What was security like? So when they build this camp, they're they're kind of refurbishing well, what the CCC folks had done. Uh, what are they doing to build it back up to make it into a POW camp? Uh, they had the buildings, but you read the early newspapers. They're talking about they're building the stockades and the towers and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And when you really look at the pictures that we do have of it, the towers are very short and small. The fence is very – it's not a real big – what you would think of as a prisoner of war fence, but it did have barbed wire on the top of it. But the, the overall, it was lax. The prisoners, they would go down and work around the camp, and they would had a swimming hole they created down there. And them and the guards would go swimming at the same time. The guards would lean their guns up against the trees, and they would swim together, you know. And uh, so it was very lax camp. And, and a little bit later on, we'll go into the story. We had a couple escapes from there, but, but, uh, but you know, overall, it was not real strict. Yeah, I think most Americans probably have a better idea of what a German POW camp was like compared to what an American POW camp was like. Yeah. So, you know, we're thinking guard dogs and, and guard towers yeah, and n- razor wire and that kind of thing. N- but not the case in Lawrenceburg. Not the case, no. Um, who were the prisoners that came there? Uh, were they from a single military unit or did they come from all over? I think they were they were from all over North Africa. The ones that we know that were there were in the Africa Corps, and they had been captured and brought over early. You know, 42 is when we went into North Africa, and so they had been captured. They were there for a while. Then they got eventually shipped to the United States and came into North Fork, Virginia. And uh, then from there, they would be sent out to camps all over the United States, and this bunch would be sent to Tullahoma where they would stay a while. And then from there, they got sent to Lawrenceburg, which uh, – Started in April of 1944 is when the first ones got there. You mentioned the Africa Corps. Let, let's talk about what that group was. So, so fighting is taking place in North Africa between the Allies, uh, the American and British primarily, and the German against the German and Italians. Uh, of course, Erwin Rommel is probably the best known commander of the Africa Corps. Um, but what do we know about were these veteran units uh, at this point, or are these mostly green young men? Probably a lot of green young men. One of them, ones we know, is Eugene Hirth. And uh, he was actually the – we found out from his daughter in Germany that he was the chauffeur or the driver for von Stauffenberg, you know, the, guy that, later on, he was. the guy that later on tried to blow up Hitler and had the patch over his eye Valkyrie, right. you know. And he was his driver, and he actually pulled him out of the vehicle that guy hit and saved his life. And he ends up in Lawrenceburg at the camp. So they were young. They were in their early 20s, you know, maybe even some of them in their teens. 
Amazing. We need to take a break. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue telling the story of German POWs in Tennessee. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hello, this is Rick Tillis with Tillis Jewelry in Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. What are you looking for in a jeweler? Knowledgeable staff? Experienced goldsmiths? Or true custom designers? Experienced working with clients creating that perfect gift for a special loved one? Well, you have found them. Tillis Jewelry. We're this and so much more. Check us out at TillisJewelry.com or on Facebook and Instagram to see our latest creations. Tillis Jewelry, Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we're talking about German POWs during World War II who were housed and incarcerated in Tennessee. I have two guests with us today, Mr. Tim Pettis and Mr. Curtis Peters, both from Lawrence County, who know a great deal about the POWs who were housed in Tennessee and specifically in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, during World War II. We talked a little bit about who the prisoners were, the unit in which they came from. Most of them had done their fighting in North Africa. Uh, During the end of that campaign, a large number of German forces were captured, surrounded by the Allies, and captured and sent back to the United States as prisoners of war. We mentioned early on that there was no real infrastructure in the United States prior to the war, of course, for housing such a large number of POWs. What were the rules governing the care of prisoners of war? Uh, during World War II, what rules did they have to go by? Uh, they had the Geneva Convention rules, and 
And I imagine that we applied those a lot better than the Germans did. Uh, the ones that were at Lawrenceburg, they had great conditions. They had a, a huge tent fixed up for them to have as a mess hall, and they actually took some of the German uh, soldiers and let them be the cooks so they could cook the food like the the prisoners would like it. And uh, there were only three to a tent, whereas when you see all of the, the history of our prisoners, they were stuck in barracks, you know, overloaded in barracks and things like that. Uh, these guys that worked at Lawrenceburg, they actually got paid 80 cents a day for the work that they did, and they were allowed to purchase two bottles of beer a day. And we actually have pictures of them holding the beer bottles. So, you know, they didn't look too unhappy. <laughs> it seems like they're perhaps that they're – life in Lawrenceburg is better than what they probably endured as soldiers in the German army. I would say so. They Some of the letters, they talk about how lucky they were to have ended up in a camp in, in Lawrenceburg with the people they knew and how well they were treated. And I think when they, when they had to leave, they'll all get shipped back, and some of them would have stayed right off the bat if they could have, but they wouldn't let them. I know you mentioned there were housing stipulations as as per the Geneva Convention rules. Uh, you could only have so many. I think each each soldier had to have, or each POW had to have a certain amount of square footage allotted to him. Rations had to be of a certain nature, a certain quality. They were paid for their work. I was interested that concerning housing, whatever the POWs had to endure, if they moved into a camp that was just being built and they had to sleep in tents, so too did the guards. The guards were not allowed to live at a higher lifestyle than the prisoners themselves. Huh. So the Geneva Convention rules are really pretty pretty lenient towards POWs. I was really pretty surprised by that. Um, so can you give me an example? What was day-to-day life like? for a prisoner of war? What time did they get up in the morning? What kinds of things would they do in the day? I've never really seen. I imagine they got up fairly early because they would get up and they eat, and then they would load them into trucks, and they would carry them out because they would go out to different areas and cut wood, and, and they did a lot of that because there was a Wrigley company up in Lewis County, uh, which I think is the original spot where the POW camp was supposed to have been, uh, but Mr. Stribling pulled a few strings and got it in Lawrenceburg. And so they would cut wood, and, and we've heard stories about some of the ones didn't like to chop wood, and they'd accidentally let their axes fall over in fires they had built, and it would burn the handles out, so they didn't have to stop and fix the handles so they're not cutting wood. But they did a lot of that, and then like, like uh, Tim said, they picked up certain ones. They went out and worked on the farms, and what they were doing is they were taking the place of all the boys that had gone to war. In Lawrence County, if you look at the numbers, we had a larger percentage of, of boys who had gone off to war than the country did, and so there was lots of spots for them to work. And they picked up six specifically and carried them to the to the dribbling farm where they'd work, but they did that for a lot of others around the area. I think the Geneva Convention rules stated that POWs could not be used for the direct purpose of, of benefiting the United States in the war effort, but sort of in an ancillary yeah. way they could by working on farms and, and cutting wood for the railroad, I think, was one of the things that yeah, they Yeah, he, he did a lot of cross ties and stuff for the railroad, and telephone poles for telegraphs and things like that, telephone poles. Mr. Stribling supplied all the cross ties between Nashville and Mobile, Alabama for the railroad. Wow. Yeah. Wow, what a, that's a huge account. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, do we know if the humane treatment of German POWs was appreciated by our counterparts in Germany? Uh, were, were Americans treated better because the United States was was following those rules so stringently? I, I doubt it. I don't think they paid much attention to that. You know, It probably helped us when, when the Germans got back to Germany. It helped our relationships with the people there right. because of what they had experienced in America. 
Yeah. I think uh, a story that Mr. Stribling's daughter told me 40 years ago, I asked her, you know, you were getting the prisoners every day, you're feeding them, you know, this, that, and the other. How did the local people react to you, especially those that lost sons in Germany and everywhere? She said, well, early on, it was no problem, but said the more that Americans found out about the treatment that our boys were getting in Germany, the more they kind of looked down on us for being so nice to them. That was going to be my next question. Was there any animosity among the general populace in Middle Tennessee towards the prisoners? I don't think so. When the first paper articles, newspaper articles came out, it referred to Nazis are coming to town. And then later on, they referred to them as German soldiers. And when they got ready to leave two years after they'd been there, the newspaper refers to them as German boys are going home. Hmm. So their attitude that way changed somewhat. They were scared to death of the Nazis being brought in originally, but over time, after they had been associated with them, uh, they got a lot better relationship. There are relatively few histories that have been written on this particular topic. One, one of the ones that I read did speak to Nazism, the, this, the idea that you know some of these soldiers coming here were, were pretty strident uh, followers of the Nazi regime. And what was that going to mean for America? Now, I think they wound up separating a lot of those more diehard Nazis into separate camps to keep them separate. I, I know in Forrest they had an actual mm-hmm. a separate camp that they put all the Nazis in. And in doing some of the research that, that Kathy Gandy did on the book, she found that we did have two Nazis that were at the camp. And we had a, uh, a uh, private uh, – his name was Mr. Mr. Creek, who had, had been in the war in Germany and been captured by the Germans, had been in the German prison camp and had gotten freed and got and came back to the United States. And they made him a guard at the camp. And so when they found out they had these two Nazi guards, uh, Nazi guys there, they actually put him in charge of those two, hmm. you know, because they thought he would he would deal with them appropriately if they tried to escape or anything. Talk about escapes. Were there any escapes at the Lawrenceburg camp? There was... Uh, one escape of two German boys, and uh, the newspaper, the articles you read, it says uh, Nazis escape, and they ended up about four or five days later being captured, and everybody in, in the county was really scared. You know, these Germans have escaped. They're liable to be anywhere. And, and the newspaper article says a, a Wayne County barber catches the two Nazis that are escaped in Wayne County. Well, I, I did a presentation at Historical Society one night, and I tell that story. And this lady in the back of the room raises her hand. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she says, he wasn't from Wayne County. He's from Lawrence County. I said, how do you know? She says, that was my dad. Hmm. And he'd gone fishing and driving down the road and saw them walking down the road and stopped and had a gun under his seat and pulled it out and stopped them. Now, let me tell you about the, these two guys that escaped. Uh, uh, one of them's name is Willie Gall. He was 20 years old, 5 feet 7, 150 pounds. The other one was Berthold Schmidt. He was 20 years old, 5 6, 126 pounds. Really big guys, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but that's the only two that escaped. It said overall in the United States we had around 1,583 that had escaped. And they caught all of them but 22. So who knows where those 22 got to. Wow. But there's a story, and, and they think it's true, but they don't know that in Tullahoma, three of them escaped, and they got up into the Cumberland area, and they came up on this cabin, and this little old lady lived in this cabin, and she came out and told them to leave, and she didn't understand what they what they were saying. She shot one of them and killed him, 
And when the law enforcement got up there, you know, they told her they were German prisoners. And she says, oh, if I'd have known that, I wouldn't have shot him. I thought it was a Yankee. You know, <laughs> and that's the story you hear. And I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, you, I've read that several places. Um, what did the prisoners dress in? Uh, you mentioned the escape. He recognized them yeah. as POWs. How did he know? Well, the only clothes they had were what they got had on when they got captured, you know. So they come to the United States, and they've been wearing these same clothes for a period of time. And so and we've, we've done a lot of metal detecting out where the campsite is, and we have found tons and tons of U.S. Army buttons. And what they did is they gave them surplus Army uniforms that had older ones and stuff like that. And so that's what they wore with no insignia or anything on them. Uh, so they had army our u.s army uniforms on wearing them around camp and in the wintertime i guess we provided them with with regular army coats and things like that too hmm. so who are pow on their yeah they would have uh, they would have we've got pictures of them they got pw on the back seats of their pants pw on the front legs of their pants so if they got away you can you can see on the back of their shirt there would be a big pw right. and you can still find a few of those around on the internet and things like that we we do not have any in our possession though hmm. um who are some of the guards were they local local men or were they military guards who were brought in specifically to work the, at the camp? The camp at Lawrenceburg had around 54 guards, and they were from places like Texas. We, we found out where some of them were from, Texas and Ohio. The camp, the camp clerk was from New Jersey, and if you see a picture of him, he looks like Radar O'Reilly. Hmm. You know, I mean, it could have been a match for him. But then we also had locals there. One of them's name was Truman Ferris. And I grew up in Loretta, and I went to the barber shop there. I got my hair cut, and the barber's name was Truman Ferris. Now, I didn't know. I mean, he had been a guard, and he had three brothers, and all three brothers were overseas. So he was the fourth boy. They wouldn't send him overseas, so they made him a guard locally. And uh, and so we had a few like that. And I've had other people in county in the county that, that had relatives that were guards there, but they were from several places. A Sergeant Blackburn was there from Texas, and we had a, a, a gentleman in Lawrenceburg, Neil Frisbee, and he was 15 years old and had a car. And so what he would do is he'd lend his car to Sergeant Blackburn, and he would use it on a weekend for dates and stuff, and he would service it and fill it up with gas for Neil. So Neil said, I could drive it all week, you know, and then on the weekends I'd take it out to him and leave it. <laughs> <laughs> um, besides the guards, I, I think the some of the POW camps had certain amenities. They had a doctor on staff, and uh, they had a PX where they could buy things with the money that they earned from their farming activities and lumbering and all of that kind of thing. Who do we know who who some of those folks were? The the doctor and and who uh, ran some of those. Uh, Kelly was the doctor. I can't think what his what his first name was, but yeah, well, his daughter actually came to Lawrenceburg uh, several years later. She's going everywhere her dad had been during his lifetime, and he was a guard camp. And we got a lot of the guard pictures from her that she sent back to us. But he ran the dispensary and stuff there at the camp. The actual doctor was Doctor Virgil Crowder from Lawrenceburg, and he was the camp doctor. U.S. provided him. Uh, and they did have that. The PX, they didn't have a German PX where they could go to, but the Germans did build a PX for the guards that were at the camp. Mm. And we've got pictures inside the PX, and you can see the cases of beer and the, the cigars and cigarettes and things like that in the background that they would be able to purchase there. And it was still there in 1955, but after that time, we don't know. It got tore down and, and removed. Um, when the prisoners, you said there were about 300 were there about uh, prisoners at the Lawrenceburg camp. Were they there for the duration, or were they rotating in and out, and that was a number that they sort of kept? 
I've never seen where other ones were brought in. All I've seen is that, and that number has fluctuated as I've done research over this. And, and you, you'll see some documents that says 285, but the last newspaper article that I found, it referred to 331 that were located there. And I assume the, the ones that were brought over, unless they had medical issues. I know the two prisoners that escaped, when they caught them, they were sent back to Tullahoma. Uh, so they went back to a more secure camp. Uh, but I think most of the ones that were brought there stayed because we know the ones that worked for the Stribblings and the Brocks, they stayed there the whole time. The war ends in 1945. Um, were they immediately released and repatriated back to Europe, or what was the process by which they returned to their home country? Uh, they had a lot of things going over, going, going on over there at the end of the war. And so they were going to stay here. Mr. Stribling had actually, we got some letters where one of them refers to Mr. Stribling telling them that the longer you wait, the better it will be on you going home because when you get home, you'll get a direct release. The ones that were taken back early, when they got to England and France, the French government, the English government putting put them to work cleaning up all of the destruction from the war. So they didn't get free. They were still in captivity. And then uh, some of the ones that later... Own got to go in the middle of, of 46. You know, one of them writes in a letter, I could not believe what happened to me. I got off the ship, uh, and, and I got a direct release to go home. You know, and one of them talks about getting there and spending eight days on the ship, and he's worried about what's going to happen. And he says, and to my surprise, when I got off, I got to go straight home. So they, they were that, there was that fear in their minds that when they got back, they would have to go work. And uh, so they were in Lawrenceburg all the way up until – uh, March of 46. March of 46. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, you know, from August when the war ended in August of 45. That's several months, up to around six months, you know. The POW struck up a relationship with some of the local folks. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Uh, the ones that the, that worked for the Brocks and Mr. Stribling, uh, the night, this is how good their relationship was, the night before they were going to be shipped out, and they didn't know, and they got word that day. They all slipped out of camp. You know, we said they had kind of a lack of security. They slipped out of camp, and they walked to Lawrenceburg, which was a good little ways back then to walk. And they walked down to the to the Brock house and knocked on the door. And uh, they came to the door, and they let them in, and they sat around and, and drank milk and ate cookies and stuff like that and visited. And then they walked back to the camp and slipped back in, and then they were gone the next day. But they had this great—we've got pictures of them with—, with uh, Aunt Jim and Delmer Brock out at the farm, you know, and we've got pictures of them eating watermelons and things like that. So they had a great relationship with them. I don't know about other families there, uh, but the ones that worked for them was, uh, and they referred to them. They referred to them in their letters as aunt and uncle. So they re, they they thought of them as family when they got back to Germany. And this is for years and years and years. The letters they wrote go from 1946 all the way up to 1972 or 73. Wow. We've mentioned them working in uh, Lewis County, cutting chestnuts. That's why there's no chestnut left. Uh, but they also worked in Murray County. And, uh, again, they were uh, people hired, and I knew one of them that drove the bus. And, of course, a guard would go on the bus with them, and they would fan out across Middle Tennessee. And Houston Parks, his grandfather, I believe, had a – and they still have a large farm here in Murray County, and, and they worked for him also – I don't know how much or what they did. And uh, if you remember the little stone house, which was there where the new HCA facility is out the road, 
uh, they built that house, and we'd give anything if we'd got at least a, a rock out of it, yeah. but we didn't. Yeah. And I understand they built a bridge somewhere in Murray County, and you probably know a whole lot more about that than we do. They did. They did. There there are some remnants, uh, some things left behind from their time uh, here in Middle Tennessee. Uh, as you said, they, they had a pretty big impact on some of the farming operations in this area. Again, as so many of the American boys were, were off fighting the war, they kind of filled that yeah. gap uh, and uh, helped with that. And it's one of the reasons why these smaller satellite camps existed. It was a means for the government to get these soldiers out yeah. uh, into these more rural areas yeah. so they could work uh, efficiently. I have a, there was a Shine Armstrong owns Square 40 restaurant in Lawrenceburg, and he's originally from the Mount Pleasant area. And Shine was young back then, and he, he says, I was six years old, and I was, you know, he was from down around St. John's. And he says, I was forbidden to cross the road. You know, I'm six years old, and I'm out running around the farm. And he said, one day the, they were farming on the other side of the road, and it was German prisoners. And he said, I slipped across the road, and I went over and talked to them and, and spent a while with them and said, that night I'm sitting at the dinner table, and, and uh, mom's talking to him. He says, I made a mistake. He said, I said something in German at the table. Oh. <laughs> he says, I won't tell you what happened, but I didn't go across the road anymore. <laughs> That's great. You, you mentioned a bridge in Murray County. There is a bridge in existence. It's no longer in use, uh, but uh, I've been tasked with finding this bridge, and I'm going to look for it. Uh, apparently, the POW signed their name to it. So I'm looking forward. Once the weather cools down uh, and the snakes are gone, I'm going to go find the bridge and, and photograph it and document it. Um, and, uh, but it, it's fascinating to me that there are still remnants of, of those folks and what they did uh, during during their time here. Um, I, I assume that the Brock family and their close association with the POWs had to do with the fact that they owned the land. They were striplings and owned the land. They had more access to the POWs, maybe? Well, maybe the uh, the guards, uh, we call her Aunt Jim, but it was striplings' only daughter. And they owned the land, so she felt like she had a little bit more uh, influence than others, but she found out she didn't. So she stayed into it with the co- commander of the camp the whole time over access to her six young Germans that she used every day on the farm. Okay. Um, these German POWs returned to their countries uh, and the status of their country, Europe in general, was in, in pretty bad condition. Uh, you mentioned that they stayed in contact with the Brock family and, and maybe others through letter writing. Um, do the letters exist? Uh, back in, in, in 1998, when Aunt Jim passed away, um, our mother-in-law and, and Tim's wife, Lynn, were, were cleaning out in the house. And in one of the closets, Lynn opens up the door and she finds a cornflake box. And she immediately thinks it's, it's the love letters that Delmer had written to Aunt Jim. So she gets it out and she starts pulling the letters out and looking at them and she couldn't couldn't read it because uh, it, they were in German, you know. And so then she kept those letters and they've been stored in Lynn and Tim's house for years and years and years. And we got those out and that's a whole story. We want to talk more about that story. We're going to take one one more break here. Uh, we'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. A while back, I told you a story about Packer, our mascot, that Don found in the garbage truck after someone had thrown her out. Well, since then, I've been asked several times about Packer. Is she a dog or is she a cat? I guess I never thought to say, but she's a pit bull mix. And you can see a picture of her sitting in the driver's seat of Don's service truck on our website, garbagemaninc.com. Serving Murray County for 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has provided the highest quality jewelry at the very best prices. They work hard to make their customers happy, and it's paid off. Their customers keep going back. Quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. We offer jewelry loans up to $4,500, and we will buy your gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still the same. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about German POWs incarcerated in Tennessee during World War II. I have in the studio with me uh, Mr. Tim Pettis and Mr. Curtis Peters. Both are experts on the POW camp in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, during the war. Before our break, um, Mr. Peters, we were talking about these letters uh, that were found in a in a in a cereal box, uh, what a what a trove to find! Um, what kind of letters were these? What what were the POWs writing about? Uh, they started off when telling about the conditions and what their trip was like, getting back to Germany, what they found when they got back to Germany, and and the conditions of their their homes and their families and things like that. And then over the years, it'll change to their girlfriends and then their future wives and then their babies and their jobs and Christmas cards and things like that. So it, it changes over time. And there are a lot of pictures early on. There are a lot of pictures of themselves and what, what their families looked like when they got back. Uh, some of them have some heartbreaking stories. One gets back home and his wife is there with her cousin and all his stuff is gone. Come to find out it was not his wife's cousin. It was his wife's lover. And so he ends up leaving and going living with mom and so he's really down and depressed. And then later on, he starts sending pictures of his new girlfriend and then his wedding and all the people, you know, so things like that. So there's a real intimate connection here between between the Brock family and, and these POWs. Very much so. And and they they knew they could get help from the Brocks. And uh, so they would ask for things. Uh, Eugene, when he got back, he became a dentist 
and uh, he's the artist, and he needs medicine for his patients over there. He can't get medicine, so he writes and asks for medicine to help with his patients. Some of them, they're asking for shoes. They're asking for food. They're asking for – there's nothing in Germany. Uh, wedding dress. Wedding dress. Everything they can find, you know. One of them even cuts out the shape of his foot and puts it on one of the letters. This is the size of shoe I need, you know, that type of thing. Wow. And uh, and so these letters are in German. So when they get back to the Stribblings and Brocks, they have to send them to somebody they know that can speak German and translate. And they translate them and send them back to them. So it's a big process in there. It's a, it's a whole story of its own. Do you know? Do we know if any of the POWs ever returned to the United States? Uh, we think some of them moved into the eastern part of the county, but we don't know which ones they were. Uh, we know some of them moved back. I actually had a boy in class where his. His grandfather was a German POW, and he had moved back into North Alabama, and that's where they had come. They had come from, so they were here, and and a lot of them would have if they could have, you know, and they just couldn't get back. Where are all, where are all those letters? Uh, yeah. In 2015, I was eating breakfast at the Square 40, and uh, Shine, I mentioned earlier, introduced me to a history professor from Lipscomb University, Dr. Timothy Johnson. And so I'm a history teacher, so we sat down and started talking history, and he found out that I had these German letters in our possession. And and so he said, would you mind if I brought the German professor down to see those? And so he got Dr. McVeigh from from Lipscomb to come down and got the letters from Lynn and Tim. And he came down to the museum and checked them out. And he was just amazed at the the old German letters. So to make a long story short, in the process, Lynn and Tim and I, we got these letters donated to Lipscomb University to their archives, special archives in the Beeman Library. And uh, they've been going through the process of translating them, getting them on the web, doing lots of research on them. So it's been a, 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 a really big story. It's a trove. I mean, it, it's really a wonderful collection of, of material that, that speaks to an awful lot of American history in this in this time period. Uh, what a what a wonderful collection. What happened to the camp facility itself? Does any of it remain? Uh, it does not. It was sold off in lots and people built houses. And in 2015, the Historical Society in Lawrence County, there are three or four of us that like to metal detect. So we went out and asked the people if we could, and, and they were glad to let us do that. And so for about a year and a half to two years, we went out, you know, maybe once a month, and we'd go and metal detect. And we we have found, you know, the first one of the first things we found, this guy pulled out a piece of metal. He said, here's a piece of scrap metal and tossed it over to me. I start dusting. I said, no, this is a German dog tag. And so we have found couple German dog tags, uh, several buttons off of German tunics, a skull off a German panzer cap. Uh, uh, we found German coins, found a ring made by the Germans, lots, lots of things. We found a medal that was given to a German soldier by the Italian government with a swastika on it. The guy thought it was a button, and we start cleaning it off, and it's got that swastika on it, so it was not a button. It was a medal. And, and so we've got all those on display at the museum in Lawrenceburg. Uh, but it was just, it's just a, you know to find something like that and then start figuring out the backstory of where this came from and what this was you know right so much fun uh, talk to me about the museum I want our listeners if they want to see uh, these items that you've been able to dig out of the ground uh, in in the space that was the POW camp where can they go uh, the Lawrence County Museum is called the Old Jail Museum it's about a block and a half off of the square west of the square across from the fire department. And it's in an old jail that was built in 1893, and it's the museum for the Lawrence County Historical Society. But we've got lots of things other than just Lawrence County in the, in that museum. Uh, and, and so we've had lots of people come in there. We actually had NBC Nightly News come down and film there and film the stuff that we had dug up and, and things like that. So, 
it, and we do have some of the letters there on display. It, it's an amazing story. It really is. Um, I've had an opportunity to have a look at that museum. It's a fantastic collection. So I, I encourage anyone who's in the area of Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, to come and have a have a look at the museum and, and see these artifacts. Besides those artifacts that you were able to dig out of the ground, uh, the bridge that still remains, Tim, you have a special object that you that you own, uh, a painting. I do. Uh, Hugen Hirth, who he's already mentioned, uh, was an artist and a sculptor and very talented and became a dentist. Uh, for Aunt Jim's birthday, her husband, Delmer Brock, went to Nashville and bought some very uh, expensive paints and uh, brushes and brought them back and snuck them under the fence to Hugen Hirth to paint a picture for his wife for her birthday. The only thing that Delmer Brock forgot to bring was a canvas. <laughs> so uh, German ingenuity, uh, he painted this beautiful picture on two or three starched prison bed sheets. And that picture was done in 43 or 4, and it's still very vivid and uh, still in the same frame, and it hangs in my office at First Farmers and Merchants Bank. And... Uh, the the picture is the night before he was captured by the British the next day, what he remembers on the beach at Tunisia. It's little natives out on the beach in a little hut. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is the blues are so vivid. As you, it, It's just unbelievable how that thing has persevered all these years painted on prison bed sheets. It's incredible. Yeah. Lucky to have it. That's amazing. Yeah. What is a lesson learned from the prisoner of war experiences, and has it had an impact on wars that have taken place since? I don't know that it has had an impact on wars. What it what it did is, when they went back, they had this good relationship that they had with the Americans, and they carried it back to Germany. So I, I think it made the rebuilding of Germany uh, after the war a lot better, and we became very close friends, especially with, you know, with the western part of Germany, anyhow. And so that was the relationship that would help you later on. And, and uh, as far as start stopping other wars, I don't know. Well, Mr. Peters and Mr. Pettis, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. This is a fascinating story, uh, incredibly interesting uh, part of the history of Tennessee and a history of our country as well. I'll end the show with this quote from Oliver Omenson. He said, I was mentally prepared to sustain serious injury or death, but before that day, I never contemplated the reality of being captured by the enemy. I thought, this is going to be hard on the folks, only to realize that I had actually verbalized my thought out loud. As the English-speaking officer and I walked side by side, he said, war is terrible, isn't it? Thanks for listening. Join us again next week as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for a journey through time.